What's up, Moto community? Welcome to episode three of the Dented Pipe Podcast. I am your host, Ron Dog, and tonight we are going to review last Saturday's Supercross from San Diego. First off, like I do to open all my podcasts, I want to just remind everyone that this is a privateer podcast by a fan for the fans. I have no connection to any of the writers, teams, manufacturers, managers, mechanics, or any of the sponsors involved in the Monster Energy AMA Supercross series. I am simply a fan who grew up riding dirt bikes and at a young age went to my first Supercross and just fell in love with the sport of Supercross and motocross ever since. So with that said, there's really just one question left to ask. Are you ready to podcast? Let's take a look at the 250s. This is round six of the 2020 Supercross season, and each and every week the 250s have brought the excitement. Austin Forkner made it a personal charge to try to be the fastest qualifier, and him and Dylan Ferranis went back and forth in the last qualifying practice trying to set the fastest lap time. Like every lap, Forkner would set it, and then Ferranis would finish that lap, and he would beat it. Then Forkner would come back the next lap, and he would beat Ferranis. But ultimately, Ferranis would qualify as the fastest 250 rider for the sixth straight week and undefeated in qualifying time. And this back and forth battle between these two continued on into the entire night. Austin Forkman would win Heat 1, followed by McAdoo, Drake, Brown, Tanty, Martin, Hartraff, Falk, and Auberson going directly to the main event at a Heat 1. Dylan Ferrandis would win Heat 2, followed by Moseman, Cooper, Hayes, Wilson, Clout, Howell, Carnell and Gardner going directly to the main event. Costello would win your LCQ, followed by Harmon, Mackler, and Comporse, rounding out the 22 riders in the main event. So in the main event, Austin Forkner would grab the whole shot, but he would come into the first turn a little bit, drive it into that first turn a little bit deep, and end up, even though he was first across the chalk line to get the whole shot on the inside, his momentum carried him to the outside of the turn, and that allowed Michael Moseman to cut inside and get a great drive through the first rhythm and take the lead. After the first lap, uh, the running order is Moseman, Clout, Forkner, Ferrandis, and Cooper rounding out the top five. Both Forkner and Ferrandis would get around Clout the first time through the whoop section, with Cooper making a pass on Clout and moving into fourth by the end of the first lap. 11 minutes plus one lap, Forkner pulls alongside Moseman and makes a nice block pass in the corner before the first whoop section taking the lead. A couple corners later, Moseman would dive inside Forkner but isn't close enough to make the pass, and this would allow Ferrandis to make a pass around Moseman and move into second. Moseman again fires right back, cutting inside on Ferrandis to make a pass, um, but unable... What it does is it... It's going into the last turn for the finish line, and this this keeps them from being able to jump the finish line. And then coming over the landing of the finish line, Moseman's able to get back in front temporarily. Ferrandis would set up a nice block pass in the next corner, and after a little contact due to uh, Moseman trying to cut down in the corner, Ferrandis would be able to clear Moseman and now put his focus on running down Forkner in the lead. Cooper is now trying to get around Moseman, but the front two are still starting to pull away. Eight minutes plus one lap, Forkner is leading with Fernandez 1.6 seconds back, and Cooper finally makes the move around Moseman, but he's already four seconds behind the leaders, and Moseman in fourth is six seconds behind the leaders. 
McAdoo is having a great ride, and he is catching up to most men, but eventually he would have bike problems and drop out of the race. Five minutes plus one lap left. Forkner still leads. Ferrandis is reeling him in, and then Ferrandis would dive to the inside and try to make a pass. He wasn't close enough for the pass, so he'd have to check up, and then he'd lose time to Ferrandis. But he had this, I'm sorry, Ferrandis would lose time to Forkner, but he had the speed to reel him back in. So the gap kept kind of going from one and a half seconds to less than a second. One and a half seconds every time Ferrandis would try to make a move to less than, than a second when he'd reel him back in. Just over one minute, one lap to go. Ferrandis finally closed in enough to make the block pass on Forkner. Um, there's this corner where it's an off camber. So the inside of the corner is built up and it tapers down into the berm at the outside. The fast line was to, you doubled in, railed around the outside of the berm, and at the, the berm would end in the takeoff of a double coming out. There are three kind of singles coming out of this off camber turn. So if you run around the inside, you could double and then single in across the start straight into the final corner for the finish line. Or if you went to the inside, you had to roll that first single and then double out. It was quicker to go around the outside double single than single double. But the two times that Ferrandis had tried to make the pass already on Austin Forkner, Forkner's rolling around the outside of that corner, Ferrandis would come across the middle of the turn, but he wasn't close enough. Well, this time he was. He was able to slide in and make a block pass. Now there was the high rut that went all the way around the berm, and then there was a rut just inside of it. Ferrandis ended up catching that rut inside, and again, just like last week in Oakland, it didn't look like there was a lot of contact, maybe a slight little bit of contact, but Forkner goes off the track again. He doesn't go down, um, and you see him, he goes around the three singles and gets back on the start straight, but he didn't gain any time on Ferrandis, he didn't gain a position, so it was all good, it was all clean. But now he's already lost a couple seconds just there because he went off the track and had to get back on. Ferrandis would go on to win the main event and his third race of the 2020 season, followed by Forkner, Cooper, Mosman would hold on for fourth, and Hartrath would get fifth. Sixth would be Clout, followed by Hayes, Brown, Drake, and Alex Martin rounding out your top ten. And impressive as it was, the pace that they sit, they set, sorry, they were racing, they lap all the way through 10th place, which is Alex Martin. Alex Martin is a good racer. So they were going really fast that night. So let's take a look at, at some of our top riders in the 250 class. Of course, your first rider is going to be your winner, Dylan Ferrandis. Dylan Ferrandis, with the exception of the whole shot, had a perfect day. He was the fastest qualifying. He won his heat race, and he won the main event. So a perfect day would be getting the whole shot in the main event, and you would have been number one all the way across the board. But for Dylan Ferrandis, it was an impressive ride, like I said, lapping up the 10th place. And at the end of it, when he finally got around Forkner, Forkner ended up falling to about six seconds back when he crossed the finish line. Dylan Ferrandis, for the second week in a row, got a good start, which was important. That's what we've been talking about the last couple weeks. As a negative for Ferrandis is his starts. Well, now in Oakland and again here in San Diego, he's gotten two top five starts. And he's proven when he can start up front, he is the fastest rider out there. And he can finish first. So my positive for Dylan Ferrandis is his dialed-in starts and his confidence. Dylan Ferrandis, ever, ever since the incident with Christian Craig, has been smart. He's put in good, safe, clean, aggressive 
but clean block passes. The pass on Forkner last week in Oakland, I had no issues with. The block pass this week with Forkner again, I had no issues with. In both cases, Ferrandez looked like he barely touched Forkner, um, and he definitely did not shove Forkner off the track. So for Dylan Ferrandez, it is a great job. Again, still, the only negative this week I can find for Dylan Ferrandez is that he still just doesn't have a whole shot. The only thing Dylan Ferrandez could have done better in San Diego last week was get the whole shot in the main event and lead every lap. So for Dylan Ferrandez, he is on the high. He is at the, the top of the class, top of his game, going into the six-week break. As next week in Tampa, we start the East Coast 250 Supercross Series. The second rider is going to be Austin Forkner. Now, Austin Forkner, if a 1-1-1 with a whole shot is the best, a perfect day, he was the second. He uh, got second qualifying. He won his heat trade, his heat race, which Fernandez was not in. And he got the whole shot in the main event, and he finished second in the main event. Austin Forkner came into San Diego looking to fight with Dylan Fernandez for that win. And that's what I said last week that he needed to do. He needed to be ready to fight from beginning to end, and he came in ready to do that. Forkner got the whole shot, and he pushed. I mean, unfortunately, he just pushed a little too wide. Um, and that happens a lot of times when we're on the inside. If you're on the inside and you get a will on everybody else, you control the corner. But sometimes you have to drive it in a little bit harder and a little bit farther than that. Plus the angle, as you come through the inside, you have to drift out. Where someone on the outside, if they have a clear track, they can cut the turn tighter and come straight across the line. So unfortunately, Forkner lost a couple spots by pushing it a little bit wide. But my positive for Austin Forkner is he's putting himself in the best possible position from the beginning of the race. He was third behind Clout and behind Mosman. Two riders that are good, doing great, having great seasons and riding good, but Forkner is faster. He knows he's faster. He knows he can beat them, and he knows he belongs in front of them. He's also ahead of Dylan Ferrandez, his number one competitor for the championship. So my positives is just how good he's doing and also the maturity. And what I mean by maturity is with a lot of pressure that Dylan Ferrandez has put on Austin Forkner these last couple of weeks, he hasn't made that mistake like he did in the season over at Anaheim 1. When Cooper was pressuring him, he went a little wide and got stuck in the tough block, and then he got confuzzled or, or lost in the moment and kept the track. We aren't seeing that anymore from Austin Forkner. We're seeing him hold his composure, hold his lines, and run good, fast laps. Uh, my negative for Austin Forkner, unfortunately, is twice now when Dylan Ferrandez puts a block pass on him for the lead with the slightest bit of contact. Like I said, Ferrandez is not slamming him. Ferrandez is not taking him out like the incident with Craig. He is literally coming alongside him, and in the replay in slow motion for the San Diego pass, Ferrandez completely hooks up inside that inside rut. I don't think their shoulders... Their legs, I don't think their bodies touch at all. At most, it looks like Ferrandez' front wheel kind of hops out of the rut and might touch uh, Forkner's front wheel. But other than that, and it was very slight contact, by far, um, Ferrandez is not pushing Forkner off the track, yet Forkner keeps standing the bike up straight. I don't know if it's to avoid contact. I don't know if he's afraid of getting hit. Or I don't know if he's afraid of being taken out, but it's like he stands up and bails out off the track. This is becoming an issue. He needs to stay in there. It is better 
to give up the position than it is to go off the track like he is, and then he loses two or three seconds trying to get back on because he can't just get on the gas and, and just fly down the side of the track to keep up with uh, Ferrandis. He'll get penalized. Um, the other thing is Ferrandis dove to the inside of that corner at least twice they showed on TV before he actually completed that pass. So Forkner needs to be a little smarter. He needed to know, hey, if Ferrandis is close, if I can hear Ferrandis, he might come to the inside there. That gives him two options. Either A, like we saw with Cooper Webb and Adam Cincerillo in the 450 class, which I will cover here a little later, um, the same moves were done. Cooper Webb coming down the rhythm section leading into that off-camera turn got a wheel ahead of a Cincerillo, and he was on the outside. He went to the berm. Adam Cincerillo stuffed that single going into the corner to slow his momentum, and he kind of slid all the way across the middle of the turn from the inside all the way to that outside berm. Kind of ended up where Ferrandis was when he made the block pass on Forkner. Now what Cooper Webb did is he locked up the brakes, spun a quick 180, and cut down the middle of the turn. So Adam Cincerillo slid across, and then Webb just accelerated straight through where, where Cincerillo was instead of railing around the berm and being where Cincerillo ended up and could make the block pass. So that's one thing Forkner could do. He could do a counterattack, which is what they call that. Or B is you lit up. If the guy has you beat and he is going to put the bike in your line and he's kind of in front of you, he's completed the block pass. So what you do is you shut it off for a second, let them have the line, and then you stay right behind them. And a counterattack is when you, as soon as you can in the next corner, you try to pass them back, or at least you're still right behind them and you can run with them to set up a pass later. But Forkner tends to bail out and eject off the side of the track. And when that happens, he loses two or three seconds by the time he gets back on. And Ferranis is too fast, and he cannot catch toe, and he cannot keep up with him. So Ferranis, I think he just needs a little bit. I don't know if it's a mental toughness or, or physical toughness, but he needs to stay in it, or he needs to be smart, and he needs to back off. Let Ferrandis make that pass and stay right on him, pressure him into a mistake, or get him back a couple corners later when he can set up his own block pass. And that brings us to our third rider, which is Justin Cooper. Now, Justin Cooper got another third place. He's been very consistent, and with the exception of the Triple Crown, he has been on the podium every week. Unfortunately, that that's a third place, and he's not finishing ahead of the two guys that are ahead of him in points. So my positive for Justin Cooper is he's riding a solid third third place consistency. He's putting himself in the perfect position that if Austin Forkner, who he's still ahead of in points, or uh, Dylan Ferrandis, who he's just a few points behind, makes another mistake and they have another bad race, he's in the perfect position to capitalize and get those maximum points and put himself back on top. My negative for Justin Cooper he was right there with him this week. Last week in Oakland, he got the whole shot, but kind of made a mistake in the first rhythm, and he got shuffled all the way back to sixth. And then by the time he worked his way back up to third, uh, four pair of France were gone. This time, he started right behind him. After Forkner's mistake into the second corner, uh, or at the end of the first lap, rather, they were running second, third, and fourth. Forkner second, Ferrandez third, and Justin Cooper was right behind those two in fourth. 
and all three of them quickly made moves around Clout. But unfortunately, it took Cooper a little bit longer to make the move around Moseman than it took Ferrandis and Forger, and that allowed them to stop gapping, to start gapping Justin Cooper. Justin Cooper needs to try to find another gear. Um, we're six rounds through. I think there's nine for the West Coast. And at least two of those are East-West shootout, which could be a good thing for Justin Cooper if he can get a good start and win and put some of these other coast, East Coast guys between him and Ferrandis, him and Faulkner to get more balance in points. But my point is there isn't very many races left in the series, and he's not very many points back. But I think if he were to win the remaining races for the West Coast guys and Ferrandis gets second, they're going to go into that final round very close to points within a couple. I mean, he might even be able to take the points lead, but it's going to come down in the final round of whoever gets the better finish. And right now, Cooper is not showing he can run with those guys up front or little or let alone beat them heads up by putting down fast laps and racing them head to head. Our fourth rider is Michael Moseman. Michael Moseman had a great night. This is his third, fourth. Uh, it seems like every other week he gets fourth place. Um, he put in some good solid laps and he led some. My positive for Michael Moseman is that not only did he capitalize on Austin Forkner pushing wide off the start, but he also took the lead and he didn't just give it up. He led for four laps and then when Forkner passed him, he was aggressive and tried to counterattack him in the next corner, which didn't work. And then when Ferrandis was able to make the pass because of his uh, attempted counter pass that didn't work, he went right back after Ferrandis. Unfortunately, the two of them just had enough speed to pull away, and Moseman would fall back and even eventually lose third place to Cooper Webb. My negative for uh, Moseman is just that he started up front with these guys. I do think... Dylan Ferrandis, Austin Forkner definitely were faster, and I didn't expect him to hold those two off for the whole race. And even Coop, Justin Cooper, being as close as he was, you know, just one spot behind him, uh, it doesn't surprise me that he got fourth. That's not what I'm surprised about, and that's not a negative at all. Those guys are flying, and Michael Moseman getting fourth is very respectful. My thing is he started up front with them, and he totally lost them. He ended up 21 seconds or something like that behind by the finish line. So for Michael Moseman, I would like to see him, they call it uh, catch toe or toe along, you know, where you get passed by a guy and you start following him and seeing what he's doing that's quicker than you and picking up his lines around the track so that, yes, you might lose uh, to the leader by six, seven seconds like Justin Cooper did, but at least you stayed up there. You saw what they were doing. And you're able to learn from them so that hopefully in the weeks to come, during this six-week break, you can really see, hey, they are better at me in the whoops or in a rhythm section or at scrubbing a jump or on flat corners coming off the finish line jump, whatever it might be. And you now have six weeks to solid work on that and get ready when we go back to Seattle. Unfortunately for Michael Moseman, falling 21 seconds back, and I think Cooper was only six seconds back, I mean, you didn't get to see any of that. After a couple laps, they're all gone, and you're just out there riding laps by yourself, not knowing what they're doing that is better than you. So for Michael Moseman, I would like to see him dig a little deeper and try a little harder to stay with those guys if he starts up front with those guys. He's having a great season. 
He's got a lot of building blocks from the 2020 season, and I, I think there's a good future for him. I just would, I think it would benefit him a lot to be able to run with these front guys and finish close to the front guys. So he, he gets the confidence that he can run with them and run their pace and finish up front with them. So our fifth rider is going to be Brandon Hartrath. He qualified fourth, got seventh in heat one, and ended fifth place in the main event. My positive for Brandon Hartrath is he has become a consistent top five rider week in and week out. You're not surprised to see him on the podium if it happens. My negative is I really can't say much negative about him. Again, he's having a great building season. He has become a top five rider. I expect him to be in the top five every week, and he puts himself in a good position that if any of the front runners have an issue and go down, he's bam, right there. He got two podiums because of that. So for Hart Raff, there really isn't anything negative. Yes, he's not impressing everyone in winning races or running up front with the, the front guys, but he's being a top five guy, and I, I think that's great for him. I think he's doing a great job. Lastly, I just want to give a shout-out to Luke Clout. He's doing an amazing job. Got his first top five last week in Oakland. He got sixth this week in San Diego. It was announced on social media that he will not be returning to Australia for the Australian uh, Motocross Series. He's going to stay out here in America and complete the Supercross Series and maybe even do the AMA Lucas Oil Motocross Series uh, starting in May. So for uh, Luke Clout, that's a great job. Very proud of you, and if he can keep up his uh, consistency and these great rides in the top five through eight positions, I mean, he might have a shot at a, a factory team coming in the next year or, or the year after that. So great job to Luke Clout, and that's going to do it for our 250 class. I'm going to take a quick break here, and then we will go ahead and take a look at the 450s. So let's take a look at the 450s class. Surprise, surprise, Adam Cesarillo is for the sixth week in a row, the fastest qualifier. Ken Roxon would have a very impressive heat race, winning heat one by 11 seconds. Now that is an impressive gap over second place in such a short heat race. Adam Censorilla would go on to win heat number two. So in the main event, Blake Baggett would sneak around the inside and get the whole shot, but just like Forkner, he would drive it in a little hard, end up sliding to the outside, and a couple guys would get by. Um, at the end of the second turn, Webb, <laughs> Censorillo would go in, oh, well, let's set it up, okay. Plessinger goes in and block past Blake Baggett, and then Censorillo dives to the inside of Plessinger and block passes him in the same turn, and Cooper Webb just cuts down around the inside of the turn and takes the lead. Uh, Censorillo wouldn't hold back, though. He would quickly block pass going into first uh, in the first set of whoops and lead at the end of lap one, running first, followed by Webb, Plessinger, Stewart, Hill, Baggett slipped all the way back to six, Barsha, Brayton, Roxon, and Tomac rounding out your top ten. So both Ken Roxon and Eli Tomac did not get good starts. Fifteen minutes and one lap left, Censorillo is still leading, and is stretching the lead out to about 1.5 seconds. Now, this is, again, a lot like what happened with Ferrandis and Forkner. He would get about a, a second and a half. Cooper would kind of close it back into just under a second, and he'd stretch it back out. Plessinger, though, was riding a surprising third and keeping Cooper honest in second. 
a little farther back, Hill and Stewart are starting to fade. I, I wouldn't really say fade, but the fast pack guys were coming from the back. Both Barsha, um, Tomac, and Ken Roxon started working their way through the mid-pack. 13 minutes plus one lap. Plessinger, unfortunately, gets on the gas a little bit too hard, coming into a burn, and his rear end spins out. He does a 180 and and has to set the bike down, allowing Baggett to get by into third. Um, 13 minutes in one lap, and the running order now is you got Barsha, Roxon, and Tomac up to fourth, fifth, and sixth. Roxon has been following Barsha for a couple laps and is unable to make the pass. This holds him up and allows Tomac to finally get around Roxon and start applying the pressure to Barsha. 10 minutes and one lap, Cincerello is still leading. Webb is keeping it now between 1.5 and 2 seconds, and Baggett is a little over 4 seconds back in third. Tomac reels in Barsha and makes a pass after the second set of whoops, but Barsha being Barsha will not give in, and in the next corner tries a block pass. Tomac gets inside and pushes Barsha all the way wide in the last turn. They actually come to a complete stop for a second in the last corner before the finish line jump. This prevents them from being able to jump the finish line. And unfortunately, as, fun, as funny as this is going to sound, Ken Roxon was too close. So he also had to single the finish line jump because if he went for the double, they'd be coming up and over the landing as he was coming down, and that was too risky. So Ken Roxon played it smart, but he too had to roll the, the finish line jump, and that kept him from having an advantage to gain on those guys. So with five minutes left, Webb tried to block pass, uh, Censorillo, but wasn't close enough and, and basically just comes to a stop so he doesn't make contact and doesn't take either of them out. But he's still, he's starting to wick it up and apply the pressure. Five minutes left and Webb is still battling for the lead. Neither rider is holding back. With some lappers getting in the way, Webb is able to reel Censorillo back in and bag it now. We're starting to close into third. Two minutes left and we're coming at, we're coming out of the first whoop section. Censorillo cuts inside on Webb, and Webb has to grab a handful of the front brake. Basically rides a nose willy into the berm and somehow keeps it on two wheels. And as soon as Censorillo clears him, he's able to lit up the front brake. The back end comes down, and he flies around the berm and gets right back into it. Somehow, Cooper Webb has found a rhythm rolling. There was like a small whoop to help you get up on top of the whoops. So he's rolling that one in the first whoop, and then he's jumping three, four, four through the first whoop section. And then in the second whoop section, he's jumping three, uh, four, three. And it somehow jumping through the whoops, Cooper Webb is going faster than Adam Cincerillo blitzing the whoops. Um, a couple turns later, Webb would finally be able to cut down um, into the – I talked about earlier, he comes into the – the rhythm section coming into that high off-camber turn, he's able to get a wheel in on Adam Cincerillo. So Adam Cincerillo is on the inside. He's on the outside. Webb starts in the berm, and Adam Cincerillo comes all the way across the turn to the very edge where the berm would end to try to block him. Webb just kind of cuts down hard in the middle of the berm, lets Adam slide by, and just accelerates away into the lead. And Webb would go on to get his first win of the 2020 season. He would be followed by Censorillo, Baggett, Tomac would get up the fourth, Barsha would get fifth, and Roxon would end up in sixth place. So this was a night where, surprisingly, 
the 450s were just as exciting and had just as much action going on in them as the 250s did. So let's look at these riders. Cooper Webb, he qualified fourth. I think that's his uh, – he might have qualified third in Oakland. But in any case, he started off the season qualifying in double digits, a lot of places down in 15th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, which in 2019, that didn't mean anything. He'd qualify eighth or ninth, not look like he did anything, and he'd be up front and winning races still. Now, 2020 has been a little different, but he showed he was here to win. Um, Cooper Webb, I feel, got some confidence and might have kind of mentioned it last week on the podium with that last minute, last lap, last turn pass, excuse me, on Ken Roxon to get second place. And Cooper Webb, as we know, is the guy who builds off of confidence. So I think he came into San Diego having a little bit more confidence and feeling feeling like he could win and he's ready to win. And Roger DeCoster challenged him. The team uh, owner said, hey, are you ready to win this thing or am I wasting my time? And I think Roger DeCoster said that because he knew that it's exactly the thing that would fire Cooper Webb up. Cooper said, no, I am ready to win this. You are not wasting your time. And he came out and he won this race. And he's now with uh, Tomac in, in fourth. And Roxanini back in six, he's now only nine points back. He cut the deficit in half. He came in 18 points back, and he's leaving nine points back. Now he just needs to win three races. And if Ken Roxanini gets second, they are tied for points. So he, this championship now is back in his hands. They kind of had a bad race, and that led him back in the points. But now, only six rounds in, 11 rounds to go, Cooper Webb can do can win it enough and be consistent enough that no matter what the other guys do, he can still win this championship. He doesn't have to rely on them anymore to have a bad race. So my positive for Cooper Webb, he is uh, he he has taken his weekend, he has taken his weakness and he is focused on it. He has improved on it. Webb knew he was weak in the whoops and that has hurt him both in A2 and and over in Oakland. Um. Blake Baggett, who also rides a KTM, but a different KTM team, was brought over to the KTM test track to ride with Cooper Webb today. Because Blake Baggett's known to being good in the whoops. So they wanted to see, hey, what's his technique on the same bike? What's his settings on the same bike? And it seems to have improved. Blake Baggett said he was happy and glad they invited him. It looked like he improved too as he got third place. But looking at Cooper Webb, now his confidence is really growing. I felt he started getting that confidence, started getting that chip back on his shoulder when he got that second last week in Oakland, and now he's won. And you could see it. He said he went down in his heat race, and that made him mad. He was mad as a hornet. I don't know how mad hornets get, but the point is he got pissed off. And when he rides pissed off, the rest of the field's in trouble because he rides fast when he is confident and when he is angry. And he doesn't do stupid stuff on that same – off-camber corner um, that Ferrandis made his pass on Forkner and that Anderson Cirillo slid across the inside and he undercut. He did that once, and he was going to hit Adam Cirillo and hit him hard, so he locked up the brakes and basically came to a stop and let Adam Cirillo take off. So even though he's mad or he's confident, he's going to ride you aggressive, but he's not trying to clean you out. He's not trying to knock you down. He's not even trying just to rough you up in the corners. He doesn't want to make contact. He's willing to if he has to, and at times it will happen. But I've seen in several occasions this season where he's avoided contact if possible. So for Cooper Webb, I'm glad to see that confidence. Even Chad Reed said 
and it surprised everybody in Oakland. When he was in the announcing booth in Oakland, he said the guy I would be watching out for would be Cooper Webb. And Ricky Carmichael kind of said, really? I mean, he's so many points back. And even then, that was before the night was over, so he's more than 18 points back. And Chad Reed called it because now all of a sudden, in one race, Cooper Webb has now made this a three-rider run. And this is exactly what he did last year in 2019. He started out consistent. He started out decent. He had a couple bad races. A1 wasn't a good race. And San Diego last year was a mud bath. And then, of course, we had the whole uh, Lyme issue that affected so many bikes and riders and, and Ken Roxon. But anyways, it was a dry race this year. And now we're leaving California, going to the East Coast, where his riding style fits that type of dirt. The way the tracks break down, the way the whoops break down, jumping kind of becomes the way to do it. And Cooper Webb has proved that like Marvin Muskan, which I'm sure he learned a lot from him riding with him last year, that he can jump through the whoops in a way that somehow is faster. My negative, Cooper Webb didn't get the whole shot, so he got his his jersey was dirty from eating all that roost for 20 laps behind Adam Cicerillo. That's just a little joke there. I mean, Cooper Webb had a great night. It wasn't perfect. Uh, funny story. They talked about, I think, in the post-race interviews, um, or I'm sorry, in the uh, press conference, post-race press conference, <laughs> either Adam Cicerillo said, I think Adam Cicerillo said it, that he made a move to block Cooper early on in the race. Cooper tried to get around and go into that last corner for a finish line jump. He made a move where he slid over and he basically cut the line off and they both came to a complete stop for a second. <laughs> he said he could hear Cooper yelling, let's go! Because Cooper knew that Baggett was gaining on him from behind. So how smart is Cooper what? Or yes, Cooper what? He is able to pace himself. He is able to stay close enough to the leader and let the race come to him. And he's close enough to know where, or I'm sorry, he's conscious enough to not only know what he has to do to try to get around the guy in front of him, but keep tabs on the guy behind him. I mean, Cooper Webb just is showing he is like the complete package right now. So I'm really impressed with Cooper Webb. We all know I'm on the Webb wagon. We all know Cooper Webb's my guy. Um, I said it a couple episodes ago. I'll say it now. Um, we are dragging that Webb wagon right to the top of the podium. That will is fixed that I said probably was broken a couple weeks ago when he had a bad performance. But um, in St. Louis, but here it is. He's back. That wheel is fixed. The web wagon has rolled through San Diego, and it is rolling with a full head of steam going to Tampa this coming Saturday. So the second rider we're going to look at now is Adam Censorillo. Qualified first, won his heat race, got second in the main event. Adam Censorillo, if you look at rookie riders, look at even um, – Rookie 450 riders like James Stewart, Ricky Carmichael. These guys are greats. James Stewart, Phoenix, his rookie season, crashed in practice, broke his arm, missed half the season. Ricky Carmichael took, let's see, 99, 2000. It took him three years to get the hang of the 250s. Well, back then they were 252 strokes, so what would be the 450 class now? The premier class, we'll just say. These guys turned out to be greats. Ricky Carmichael, I don't think, completed an entire Supercross season in his first two years because of injuries. So Adam Cincerillo is still in fifth place in points. 
he is still only 17 points out of the lead. That is not out of the points race. Um, he's going to have to start winning some races, and he's going to need some help from the other guys if he's going to win this championship. And I'll be honest with you, what I see from Adam Cincerullo, I do not see him winning the championship this year. I wouldn't be surprised if he won a race. He's been up front twice now, and he was a lot closer this time, so I would not be surprised if Adam Cincerillo won a race before the 2020 season came to an end. He might even win a couple. But I do not see him really being a threat for the championship. I see him being a threat to be in the top five um, each and every week from here on out. I think he's finding that confidence. He looks to be getting more um, more conditioning to to last to the end. He kind of got really bad arm pump in Oakland and faded. And he's kind of been known about that 15-minute, 20-minute mark plus one lap to kind of be slowing down and the guys in the back catching him. But he's had a great season. He, like I said, I mean, if he were to finish like this, finish top five in the points, uh, that's a great rookie season by any standard, by any standard. The only one who's done better than that, the only two, I would say, their rookie year um, would be Jeremy McGrath, who downright 93 took it from Jeff Stanton, his teammate who was the defending champion. He just said, hey, I'm going to win more races than everybody else. I'm going to be more consistent than everybody else, and I'm going to win the championship my rookie year. And then you have Ryan Dungey, who repeated it in 2010 on the Suzuki. But with Ryan Dungey in 2010, you had the top two guys defending or past champions, uh, Chad Reed and James Stewart. Both were out several races early on with injury. And then you had Ryan Villapoto coming on strong. And actually, I might have had the points lead or been really close to taking the points lead from Dungey before his nasty get-off in Seattle, which ended his season. Or St. Louis, I think it was, that ended his season. So not to take anything away from Ryan Dungey, he was a great champion, and he, he was in it like you have to be to win it his rookie year, but he didn't necessarily win it with the best of the best in the series like McGrath did. Now, most of them, Trey Kennard, um, had a rough rookie season. Um, like I said, Carmichael Stewart had rough rookie seasons. Um, Chad Reed, I don't really remember what his rookie season was like on the 450, but my point is Adam Cincerillo, if you look at all those greats, he's right there and he's probably doing better than a lot of them. So he's having a great season and you can't ask for much more from him. He's learning. One thing I love about Adam Cincerillo, I've heard several people say this that know him. He is a student of the sport which means even when he was riding 250s, he was watching everything the 450 guys were doing. He loves to watch tape. He loves to study riders. He loves to study races. He knows techniques, uh, bike setups, riding styles. He knows the sport inside and out. And if anyone is going to grow and mature to be a future champion, it will be Adam Cicerillo. So that was a little bit long-winded, but my positive for Adam Cicerillo is that, again, he led several laps in Oakland. I'm sorry, not Oakland. In the season opener, he was in second place early on following Barsha. Barsha had just a big enough gap. He couldn't close. Barsha made the mistake and went off the track. He took the lead, and they kind of run the same pace. So he kind of had that gap for, for the four or five laps he led until he made a mistake, and that gave the lead back to Barsha. He still held on for second. He led 20 laps this week in San Diego. He finished second, which ties his best 
finish, which was again at the season over Anaheim won. But the amount of laps that he led to me is got to give him confidence. Um, Daniel Blair interviewed him on the podium after the race. He says, you look upset. You look frustrated. You look like you're smiling and happy. So what's going on? And Adam Cicerelli even said, I don't really know. I'm all that much. He's all overall. I can't be, uh, I can't be upset at myself. I'm having a great season. I had a great race, you know, hats off to Cooper. He, he beat me. He hands it down. He was a better rider tonight, but, uh, I think he's getting confidence. Each time he gets in the lead, he's leading longer. Um, Cooper right out of the gate looked like he was pushing him in the beginning. So I don't know if he ever really had more speed than Cooper, but definitely towards the end. And he even admitted it. Um, he needed to, he needs to work on his, his sprint speed at the end of the race, the last five laps or the last five minutes plus a lap, because that's when Cooper is, is the most dangerous. That's when Cooper, Tomac, Roxon, they're, they're notorious for being strong finishers. So if he's going to get in front of them, he needs to be able to finish as strong and as fast. He needs his last lap averages. He needs his last five lap averages to be pretty close to his first five lap averages. Uh, my negative for Adam Censorillo, um, AC didn't have the speed at the end. Um, he held off Cooper. In the beginning, Cooper kind of settled, followed him, saw what he was doing. And then when he applied the pressure at the end, I mean, Adam fought. He was smart. He didn't do anything stupid that put himself or Cooper at risk of going down or taking each other out. But at the same time, you know, he – it took everything he had to try to stay in front of Cooper. And once Cooper got in front of him, Cooper just kept edging away. So he needs to try to find that, that speed there at the end. And he's going to win one of these soon. He's going to figure it out and win one of these soon. Overall, AC is having a great rookie season. And like I said, I look to him to win at least one, probably even a couple of these before the, the series comes to a close. So our next rider is going to be Blake Baggett. Blake Baggett qualified fifth. He got third in his heat race. And he got third in the main event. Blake Baggett with that whole shot, just he said it himself on the podium. I just drove it in a little bit too hard and couldn't make the turn. He said he ended up in the bleachers, so I guess that means he went off the track. I didn't quite see that. It looked like he stayed on the track from what I could see on the TV. But still, he fell back to sixth place uh, at, by the end of the first lap and had to work his way back up. My positive for Blake Baggett is he regrouped after dropping back to sixth, worked his way through the pack. Plessinger was pressing both Cincerillo and Webb early, and Baggett wasn't far behind him. And then even when Plessinger went down, Baggett moved into third, and he showed that speed that he showed at A2, and this time he ended up going down. Um, he had an unfortunate, his front end started to slide uh, at A2, and then it caught a rut, which really slammed him, threw him high, and then slammed him hard on the ground. But he was showing speed there. I don't know if he had enough to beat Tomac at A2, but I definitely would have been on the podium, if not second. Uh, in that race if he had not gone down. Now here it is again. He showed the speed here at San Diego, and he kept it on two wheels. My negative for Blake Baggett is he showed the speed to catch the front guys, but in the middle, it just seemed like they he lost contact with them. And then he had to close it up at the end, but he just he, he can't afford to give these anybody in this class any kind of an advantage in the middle of the race. He set himself on the podium that, it's just like something happened and the whoops just fell apart on him through the middle of the race. And it took him a few laps to get it back together. 
but by then the front two had checked out. So he's just got to keep it together. He's got the speed. He needs to try to press hard in the beginning and keep with those guys. So at the end, like Webb, when he's the strongest, he's right there with them to make the move. Eli Tomac is our next rider. He qualified second, got third in heat one, and fourth in the main event. Unfortunately, Eli Tomac had to recover from a bad start. He was 10th place on the first lap. So my positive for Eli Tomac is he's one of the few riders with enough speed. I'd say someone like uh, Ken Roxon uh, and Cooper Webb are probably the other two that I can really think of off the top of my head that can get a, a 10th place start or so and be able to work their way up to possibly a podium position. For Eli Tomac, this was a good ride for him. My positive for Eli Tomac is um, in the past, he was known to, um, if he doesn't get a great start, it just seems like he kind of flattens out going through the pack and you just kind of scratch your head going, how did you end up getting seven? You know, you look at guys like Carmichael and Dungey and uh, Ryan Villapoto, uh, James Stewart. I mean, they could almost come from 13th, 14th and finish on the podium. And in the past, Roxon is, I'm sorry, Tomac has not been known to do that. He's been known to get a 10th, 12th place start and just kind of putter out in 8th or 9th. Unless he's having one of those nights like A2 where he had a bad start, but he just Tomac the whole field and made his way to the front. So it was good to see that uh, Tomac worked his way all the way up the fourth, even having to battle with um, with Barsha. Barsha didn't just let him by. I like seeing that fire in Barsha. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, Barsha, you know, Tom, Tomac passed him. Barsha ran it right up in there on him. He wasn't going to just let him have it, you know. Um, there is a, a group of Tomac fans or following. Even a lot of guys like... Uh, I don't know, like Jason Thomas um, and some of the other guys that Mathis has on the uh, Pulp MX show. They were saying, man, you're slower. You're slowing them up. Just get out of the way and let them go by. And I don't agree with that. I personally don't. In my opinion, you have to earn every spot. It doesn't matter if you're going forward or backwards. You should be able to fight for your position, which is what Barsha did. But anyways, Tomac eventually got around him into fourth. But my negative is by the time... Tomac got into fourth. It took him most of the race. There wasn't a lot of time left. And um, the top three guys were gone. He was over nine and a half seconds back of Baggett by the time he got into fourth. And there just wasn't enough time. And he didn't have that all-out Tomac speed to be able to run him down. So he had to settle for fourth. So our fifth rider is the other side of that confrontation, Justin Barsha. He qualified 13th, got fourth in his heat race and end up fifth in the main event. Justin Barsha got uh, a start inside the top 10, which isn't phenomenal. I mean, he needs to be starting in the top five if he wants to finish up front with the, with the way he's riding this season. But uh, he ended up getting in front of Eli Tomac and Ken Roxon. So for, for Barsha, my positive for Barsha is he put himself where he needed to be. He put himself ahead of the guys that he's battling for the points league. Two of the three guys that are ahead of him. Actually, both the guys that were ahead of him, because I believe coming in uh, into this race, he was still third place in points. Only one point ahead of Anderson, and I think about four or five points ahead of Webb, but he was still in third place in the points. So at this point, he's ahead of the two guys that he has to get points on to get back into this championship. So my positive is that he fought for every position. 
Even when Tomac came by, he wasn't just going to let him have it. it. He doesn't, I mean, I think a lot of other writers have kind of gotten over it too, but he doesn't just pull, oh, it's Tomac or, oh, it's Roxon. I'm not going to mess with them. You know, he, he fights for every position. That That's why he's got the nickname Bam Bam. I mean, look at, at A1 when he went off the track. He was about to clean the clock, uh, Adam Cincerello's clock, but he pulled up at the last second. And he did the same thing here. Yes, he might have slowed Tomac down um, with the block passing, but actually from what I saw, he dove it to the inside of the corner, and when he saw he wasn't going to get it without totally cleaning out Tomac, he cut it hard again, didn't make contact, and, you know, Tomac might have checked up for a split second, but it's really Tomac driving him deep into that turn uh, before the finish line jump again that they almost came to a complete stop again. That I think, in my opinion, personally, looking back at it, Tomac's move slowed uh, their pace down more than the moves that Barsha made. But that's my own opinion. I am just a fan. I am not eh, I am not a sports analysis. I am not an ex-racer. I am not a pro. Um, I am just a fan. And from my perspective, being able to see the replays and watch the race over and over again, I don't see anything wrong with any of the moves of, of what Barsha made. Um, I do understand where people are coming from that, hey, you're messing up Tomac. He's trying to get to the front, blah, blah, blah. I understand that. But also look at, at Barsha's position. This is a contract year for him. I think if he finishes top five in either series, he's guaranteed to ride next year. He is not out of this championship. He has to do whatever it takes to finish in front of the people he's behind in the points. That is Eli Tomac and Ken Roxon. So, and that's the way he is. He fights for every position. He took out Martin Davalos in press day. Because he cross-jumped them. I mean, Barsha is not afraid to battle anybody. So, I don't know. I'm not going to make a big deal about it. Move on. But uh, I, I like seeing what I saw out of Barsha. I saw heart, and I saw him fight for it. My negative for Barsha, he just isn't fast enough. So, even when Tomek, I'm sorry, I don't want to make that sound bad. He wasn't, he didn't have Tomac speed. Um, last night. Now, I don't want to say he isn't fast enough, but he just, once Tomac finally got around from him, he gapped him by a couple seconds. Um, in his defense, though, I will say this to Barsha, he did finish in front of Ken Roxon. Ken Roxon was never able to find a way around him. So he made up at least a point on Ken Roxon, and he lost a point to Eli Tomac. That brings us to our sixth and final rider, which is Ken Roxon himself. Ken Roxon qualified, actually I don't have a qualifying position here, but I believe it was third. Um, he got first in his heat rates, like I said, impressive, uh, won by over 11 seconds, and he got sixth in the main event. Unfortunately for Ken Roxon, he just didn't have the night he was hoping for. He got a bad start in the main event. Uh, he was in front of Tomac, which was good. Uh, Tomac's the guy who's Behind him in points, so he needs to finish, if not in front of anybody else, in front of Tomat. And unfortunately, you know, it didn't work out that way. My positive is, you know, he had, he showed he had the speed. Ken Roxon had the speed in the heat race, winning by 11 seconds. He leaves San Diego with a one point lead still, so he still has the points lead going into the East Coast starting in Tampa next week. My negative, 
Roxon started ahead of Tomac, but he could not finish ahead of Tomac. He followed Barsha through the, the middle of the pack around guys like Hill and Stewart. And uh, they got up the fourth. They got around Plessinger when he went down. But he just could not find a way around Barsha. And being unable to find a way around Barsha allowed Tomac to find a way around him. And then not only finish in front of him, but also get Barsha and get another point by putting a rider between the two of them. So all in all, though, it was a good night of racing. Everybody is safe. Everybody is healthy. Um, we've seen pictures on social media of Christian Craig getting back out there. So he is going to be ready to go and uh, have six weeks to train and get himself back into shape. So I look forward to seeing at least some of the Geico guys back in the West Coast when they come back in six weeks in Seattle. Um, as always, I just want to thank everyone for listening to this podcast. I hope you guys enjoy it. And uh, be sure to follow me on social media. I am on Instagram at Dented Pipe Podcast. I'm also on Twitter at Dented Pipe. And if you have any questions, comments, things you like, don't like, just want to say hi, whatever it is, go ahead and shoot me an email. Dented Pipe, one word at gmail.com. That's Dented Pipe at gmail.com. And as always, I hope you guys come back next week. And thank you again for listening to this podcast. I'm Ron Dog. This is Dented Pipe Podcast. Have a great evening. Woo!